The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. It's a dramatic intervention to stave off an imminent crash in the guilt market by pledging unlimited purchases of long-dated bonds. But isn't that kind of at cross-currents with Prime Minister Liz Truss' tax cuts bill uh, that was just uh, recently announced? It's kind of whipsawing markets um, you know, over the last several days. So we want to get a little bit of perspective about what's happening on the trading floors around the world. Vince Signorella joins us, global macro strategist with Bloomberg News. Vince, what do you make of what's coming out of our good friends over in London? Quantitative easing. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the interesting thing is this was all taken up um, basically because of the pension issue. Uh, pensions uh, had taken a beating on this move in bonds. Uh, there were some questions about liquidation and liquidity issues. So the BFE really just stepped in to protect the pension funds. Um, and as one uh, Treasury uh, it, uh, trader friend of mine said today, is the, is the BFE essentially engaging in yield curve control by another name, similar to the Bank of Japan uh, moves of late? And you could argue that that's realistic what's going on. I'm looking at uh, the long end of the curve here, down 100 basis points in mm -hmm. yield. Yesterday, we went over five on the UK 30-year. Today, we're under four. That kind of move um, looks like panic. Well, you know, it, it's, the, it's the same situation. It, it is because the pension funds are out in the long end. So that's where the, the, the bank of England is playing. Um, it's almost an operation twist, if you will, um, as to what they're doing to try to stabilize the, the rate situation. But, you know, what does it mean, what does it mean Vince, if you're a trader? If you're a trader who bought... The 30-year gilts yesterday, I guess you're in pig heaven. But if you yeah. are short, if you went short them yesterday, um, you're closing up shop. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, that's, this, is a, this is a very, uh, this is a rip your face off kind of move, as we <laughs> say on the street, if you were, if you decided you were going to short that market yesterday. Um, but, y you know, it, it's, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, fiscal irresponsibility as to what, what was happening prior to today and what the markets were spanking the, the pound and that market yesterday aggressively because they don't like what the, what the, uh, the fiscal policy is about cutting taxes and increasing spending, while the Bank of England is talking about raising 200 basis points to try to fight inflation. It's you've got the Treasury Department and the and the Bank of England working at odds, which is an almost emerging market kind of crisis. You, you've taken a G10 a G10 country and you've thrown it into yeah. EM. Yep, almost. I mean, uh, how often in developed markets do? Um, bond yields move one full percentage point in the space of like 20 minutes. <laughs> Vince, are we uh, highly, highly unlikely? Vince, are we going to get parity with uh, pound sterling and dollar? Yeah, because the pound hasn't exactly strengthened. We're at 106.97 right now. 
I think the currency is very much in danger of a collapse. I, yeah. I think you know it depends on on what the uh, w- what the Bank of England does next. I mean, you know, if the Bank of England raising rates now to try to defend the pound is going to make situation worse. It's going to look like the Soros uh, era, where markets are going to see the Bank of England in a panic mode, trying to protect sterling, trying to protect the currency by raising rates, and the market is going to take that be- you know a bit between their teeth and see this as an opportunity to push them to see how far they can go because there's only so far they can raise rates to try to protect the pound when you have mortgage rate um, mortgages uh, going back to being marked up and you know what does that do to the consumer you're giving them money in a tax cut but then you're taking it away by higher mortgage rates so it, it it's it's literally like throwing money into the fireplace it, ju- it just doesn't help you yeah and I'll remind our listeners that you know here in the US you get a 30-year fixed mortgage in the UK often um, the mortgage you get is for less than 10 years. So you, I think there are 1.8 million people in the UK who need to refi their mortgages this year, still. Oof. Yeah, tough situation going from uh, zero to, you know, well, maybe they had a 3% right. rate and now they're looking at like nine. So Vince, coming back to this side of the ocean, Federal Reserve, they look at all this global uncertainty. They look at kind of the, instability coming out of Great Britain, one of our, our biggest partners. Does that influence them at all? Well, I think they have to keep this in mind because you have the same similar situation here in the U.S. You've seen the stock market drop some, what, 20% or so? Yep. Um, th- does that put pressure on U.S. pension funds? It's very likely. You're probably going to see uh, another round of earnings that are, are not going to look too rosy because of the move in the dollar. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we took a run at, at one double O in sterling, that that would be, you know, the, the curtain call, if you will, for the global central banks or the, the G10 central banks uh, to step in and do some coordinated intervention. Because you know, part of the problem, too, with those stronger dollar is that 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 weakens, uh, you know, that, that lessens prices on imports um, and, and potentially uh, makes the inflation situation worse for the Fed, for the Fed as well. All right. It's very interesting. And I also wonder if people on the wrong side of the trade have to sell treasuries, if energy importers have to sell treasuries, if the Bank of Japan has to sell treasuries um, or the finance ministry to shore up their currency. All right. Vince Signorella, good stuff. We appreciate it. Macro strategist uh, for Bloomberg. Give us a sense of just kind of what he's hearing on the street from bond traders, currency traders, and uh, you know a lot of uncertainty, particularly coming out of the UK with what's been happening over there over the past really three, four, five days, uh, just putting a lot of uncertainty into the markets. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's check in with Katerina Simonetti. She's a senior VP at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Katerina, what are the phone calls that the incoming calls you're getting from your clients? Any any themes emerging to you uh, this year? Well, this has certainly been a challenging year and a challenging market, and investors are concerned. And the phone calls we're getting, uh, you know, just really, you know, they vocalize the fear that that investors are, you know, experiencing looking at their portfolios being down so much. And then what has been unusual about earlier in the year is that it wasn't just the stocks that were down, it was stocks and bonds that were down. So investors are looking for the guideline uh, from us, you know, as far as what they should do. And what we're recommending is, above all, to not fear sell, because as easy as it is to, you know, to, to be concerned about, you know, all of the markets, you know, in our view, there is an end in sight. We're nearing the end of it. The, is the uh, end 20 percent further Reserve. down? Well, there, there, there absolutely could be, and sometimes things are worse before they get better. And in our view, the biggest risk to the market are the earnings, declining earnings and the earnings revisions that, you know, we see ahead, because the reality is that we're most likely going to have core inflation remain high for some time. Market is already pricing in the interest rate increases, you know, but with earnings revisions that are not done yet, you know, this is that next leg down that we are uh, expecting towards the end of the year. But this is, again, not to say that we are bearish in the long run. But there I mean, we're looking for, I think the median for sure. is for $225 a share, uh, S&P median, S&P um, 500 year end EPS. What are you what are you looking for? Well, the question is, you know, what kind of recession we're going to get? I think the consensus is that we most likely are going to get the economic recession. And if it's going to be a mild recession, we probably are going to end the year at somewhere around 3,400 on the S&P. But if if it's more of a severe recession outcome, you know, we might be looking at 3,000. You know, and it's hard to predict these things because, you know, of course, there is a certain amount of lag between the Fed action and the desired outcome. And, you know, the what we're all questioning right now is that truly going to be data dependent, you know, as we rely on them to be, or will they react to the pressures of the market, you know, and continue tightening, you know, and as a result, push us to the economic recession. All right. I have a pre-programmed question here that I've written to myself for the okay. past couple of days. Um, and this comes from a longtime listener. Uh, I thought it was very smart. He said last year's inflation is transitory. Is this year's short and, se- and shallow recession? Um, what changes short and shallow to long and severe? What's what's that hinge on? Well, I think that that's where the risk or Federal Reserve overshooting or raising rates too much, you know, because we're not seeing the desired reaction from the inflation. That's where that comes in, because we have to allow some time, you know, between the rate hikes and uh, and inflation coming down, you know. But the 
the current economic environment, you know, has so many pressures. The cost of doing business is high. Uh, profit margins are getting narrower. Consumers are reluctant to spend money on most things outside of core necessities, you know, unless, you know, you're looking at travel and entertainment, which is like natural in the post-COVID environment. You know, but this is really the, you know, the time where negative earnings and revisions that we're expecting over the next couple of quarters take the center stage. Because Ultimately, once the earnings are revised, it will be possible for the U.S. company to meet earnings and exceed earnings, which is going to be that pivot that we're looking for into the next bull market. But we're not quite there yet. So are you if, if an investor comes to you with new money, what do you do with it? Well, with new money currently, understanding the risks and understanding you know, what is ahead of us, you know, we would dollar cost average into the equity market. We definitely would recommend staying invested, but we will pivot and lean towards the defensive sectors, sectors like healthcare, utilities, consumer staples and REITs, all dividend paying stocks because income is extremely important in this inflationary environment. You know, the other thing to consider is relative to bonds, stocks are pretty expensive, but finally, you know, unlike earlier in this yep. year, there is a little bit of a safe haven in fixed income. It's especially in short-term high-quality um, corporate bonds and uh, treasuries. We can get significant amount of yield in these sectors. And, you know, if there is a, a uh, argument to be made for a safer asset allocation while we get through this challenging, volatile uh, cycle in the market, you know, that, that makes sense for a lot of investors here. All right, Katerina, good stuff. Always appreciate getting your perspective. Katerina Simonetti, uh, Senior VP at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Well, I've always said trading biotech stocks is a tough way to make a living. You really have to be uh, right. I mean, if you're right, you make a lot of money. But boy, if you're wrong, you lose a lot of money here on these new drugs. Today's a good day for Biogen and its Japanese partner, Isai. Stocks are both surging at Biogen up about 36% today. They uh, had some good news on one of their trials about uh, one of their Alzheimer's uh, drugs. And to give us the latest is Robert Langreth. He covers uh, all things biotech healthcare for Bloomberg News. Uh, Robert, talk to us about what Biogen and ISI are, are doing today, what their drug is, and kind of what, what we learned today. Yeah, so this is a trial, I mean, actually run by ASI. ASI did this trial, was in charge of this trial, and did this trial. Uh, it's in partnership with Biogen, but ASI was really running it, and, and Biogen, well, I think, would get half of the profits as part of this longstanding collaboration. But uh, yeah, basically, this is a drug uh, to uh, remove amyloids, this, this uh, toxic protein from the brain for Alzheimer's patients. And drug companies have been trying to do this uh, uh, for many years and have tested all sorts of other drugs to do this. And uh, all the previous trials of other drugs for amyloid have generated either mixed Mixed results are failed entirely in trials. So they've been working on it years and years with little success. Uh, you may remember that Biogen itself had another drug that was actually approved called Adjahelm. It was actually approved in one of the most controversial U.S. approvals in history. Uh, and it was another amyloid drug, with their, and, but then Medicare refused to cover it because the results of the, their trials were kind of contradictory and no one could figure out whether it worked or didn't work. So now this trial is another amyloid-lowering drug uh, under the, the Biogen ASI partnership, but this one, as I said, ASI was kind of was, was leading uh, the charge on. And this trial was the first trial of an amyloid-lowering drug to show a kind of a clearly... Uh, Clearly, statistically positive effect in slowing uh, cognitive uh, decline. So amyloid now, the, is uh, like, uh, I've heard it described as like a plaque 
plaque on your brain. Yeah, they're described, they kind of form little plaques in the brain. Uh, no one is exactly sure how they are toxic. It's thought to be toxic. It's one of the leading kind of theories of Alzheimer's. Uh, everything about Alzheimer's is controversial. But this is kind of one of the leading theories. So basically, it, it, it appeared in this very big trial, this new drug, to show, you know, a, a, a small positive effect. Now, it appears yeah. to be kind of quite modest. It's like 0. 0.5 points on an 18-point scale. So I think the big debate next is going to be like, how clinically meaningful, you know, is this? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, everyone thinks this is enough to get approval. Side question, kind of, why do they give these drugs such bad names? Aduhelm <laughs> was the last one. What's this one called? It's similarly unpronounceable. Well, this is a generic name. It's Lacanamab. So MAB stands for monoclonal antibody. But it, but it's going to get a, if it's approved, it's going to get a brand name. And we don't know what that's going to be. So it could be another incomprehensible brand name. You know, who knows? Is that, that a strategy, though? <laughs> is that part of the marketing question. strategy? Like if you can't pronounce it and you can't remember what it is, Gotta then you it. must think it's going to work? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know where they come up with these names. You know, drug companies, lots, you know, like come up with names, lots of X's and Z's in them, you know, and I think they spent a lot of money on consultants to come up with the names. So how they do it, that's just hmm. a mystery. So, Robert, <laughs> you know, I, be, I, yeah. I, I but, see this but, stock, this, yeah. this Biogen stock, it's a $40 billion market cap stock. It's up 36% today. That tells me that this is a breakthrough drug. But you're telling me it's not really a or breakthrough. Or that there are a lot of punters in in bio. Uh, tech I stocks. Guess. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it, this move in the stock tells me that this is radical, and it's not radical, is it? It's well, a step okay. along so, the way. So, like, so yeah, it's a step along the way. Uh, but you know, they they haven't had really any clear cut steps along the way. You know, it's sort of like you know, all, all the steps have been aborted. So you know, this is like the first successful trial disease slowing trial. So in that sense, it's you know. A, a, a breakthrough in clinical trials, you know, yeah. but whether for it was a patient, it's a medical breakthrough, not not so clear. Well, they said the uh, um, they said the the use of the drug reduces the pace of cognitive decline in people with early disease by twenty seven percent over eighteen months when compared correct. to placebo. That doesn't sound great, but it sounds better than nothing. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, better than nothing. It's it's not so clear whether, you know, you as an individual patient or family would even detect the change in the difference. I mean, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, if you are going to decline, you know. Yeah. No, you I, know, I, by 100 I, I points in the scale, you're still going to decline 73 <laughs> points in the scale. That's a 20, 27% difference. So, you know. But I guess they, well, they, we, they're touting the possibility that it, over a longer period of time, it may do it even an even better job, right? Um um, they say that the top line data is strong as it can be with high statistical significance across all ed points. Data doesn't get much cleaner than this in biotech. That's according to uh, BMO Capital Markets Analyst Evan Siegerman. You know uh, that because you probably wrote the story. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, so I mean, this is the first thing I read when I woke up this morning. I looked over the headlines and I picked this out because it's important to me on a you know personal level. And I think for millions of people, it's a huge issue. I mean, it's a horrible disease that affects everybody in the family if one person gets it. Yeah, no, it's a very difficult disease. You know, the, the caregiver costs, the cost of this disease, you know, are very, very high. And this, you know, this drug, you know, it doesn't stop the decline. It only, yeah. you know, slows it slows it somewhat and and we don't know a lot of these details all we have right now is really just a press release from the companies we is there have, anything else has, robert is there a moonshot out there maybe something that attacks the disease differently than just removing the plaque from your brain um is anyone working on something that could be better 
Yeah, so companies are working on lots of things now. One of the hopeful things is that uh, there, there's a much kind of broader array of attempts uh, doing different uh, strategies to try to treat the disease now. It's not all just focused on the, this one idea, amyloid. And, you know, it seems you know, clear, a lot of people are saying that, you know, we'll need to make this uh, ultimately more like cancer and attack it from like three or four like different drugs at once using that attack three or four different mechanisms because clearly, you know, removing amyloid, because this drug does a tremendous job at removing amyloid, but what you get is this 27% difference. So it's clearly, you know, it seems to suggest that amyloid is not the only thing where you're going to have to suggest, go after you know, multiple causes and over time. Hey, uh, Robert, just 30 seconds left. In a post-COVID world, is it easier to get drugs approved or is there, has that changed at all? Uh, so, you know, there's no fundamental change, I don't, I don't think, in, 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 the, in the FDA's kind of approval uh, strategies as a result of COVID that I know of. Uh, but, uh, you know, certainly the, the neurology division that has been you know, looking at drugs like the ones for Alzheimer's, they, you know, they are, you know, uh, they seem to be, you know, taking an aggressive strategy and, you know, and trying to, you know, get drugs approved uh, that show begin to show some kind of a difference. Uh, you know, they approved the Biogen drug, you know, based on biomarkers, based on amyloid lowering yep. alone. This one is the first one. This one goes beyond that and actually shows like a, a measurable clinical difference, but it's right. small. It's really small. All right. Robert, good, good stuff. Thanks for that reporting. We appreciate it, Robert Langrith. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to bring in our next guest, Al Otero. He's a portfolio manager at Armada ETF Advisors, uh, and they've got a U.S. Uh, REIT ETF, H-A-U-S, talking about the housing market. We had some pending home sales today, month on month. It was down 2%. Uh, the consensus was for a decline of 1.5%, but on a year-on-year -year basis, I, that's how I like to look at it. Uh, came in at minus 22.5%, so it looks like this housing market rolling over. Al, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about your HAUS uh, REIT ETF and, and kind of kind of what you're trying to do with this ETF, uh, and then love to get also your overview, just kind of this where we are in this housing market. Terrific. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, and uh, uh, Armada ETF is a um, 
a relatively newly formed um, advisory firm house is uh, our first product. Uh, uh, we basically have backgrounds in uh, in the REIT industry, uh, in the ETF industry, and then also in the direct real estate industry. And um, the goal with with House was really, um, and our founder was was looking uh, you know, about two years ago, and it was looking for a residential REIT ETF. Um, uh, and he said, "Gee, one doesn't exist. Maybe we need to create one." And that's exactly what uh, what he did. Uh, we launched the fund back in March, and again, it's residential REIT ETF. So it's it is certainly housing related to the extent that um, uh, what goes on in the residential REIT market, that's multifamily, uh, single family rental, manufactured housing, certainly a correlation there with the single family housing market. Um, but again, the goal here is to uh, number one, current income, number two, uh, hard assets, predictable cash flows, uh, you know, attractive dividends that are, are growing at an attractive uh, rate, strong balance sheets. So lots of, uh, lots of good characteristics that roll up into the residential REIT market. So what do um, the flows look like thus far? Uh, what are you looking at in terms of assets under management? Sure, we're, we're, we're tiny, guys. Uh, we, we launched uh, back in early March. We have a couple, uh, you know, uh, several uh, several million dollars in the fund right now. Uh, we've launched into a bit of a volatile environment. I, I think a lot of folks that we're talking to like the, like the idea, uh, residential REITs, uh, uh, you know, and residential real estate, again, broadly defined, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, not just housing, uh, you know, has, has been a favored uh, part of the in- investment landscape that landscape for a very long time. Um, uh, again, rent growth more recently has just been off the charts. Uh, certainly that's starting to moderate and, and, and I think it's a good thing. But as we look back over the last uh, you know, quarter, two quarters, and we talk to our constituent companies, uh, you, know, you hear the word historic getting tossed out a lot. We've, have, we've had historic rent growth. We've had occupancy levels and, and tenant retention, uh, resident retention levels that have really just been off the charts. And lots of, lots of that has to, has to do with some of the um, structural changes that have gone on in the, in the market yeah. over the last couple of years. But um, we, we continue to see good demand I mean, for, uh, for this product. I can imagine if you'd launched at the beginning of 2021, um, you'd just be shoveling out <laughs> cash, right? But uh, um, you come in at a time, well, basically at the peak, Right when I bought my house, you mm-hmm. launched your house, um, and I feel like I got the very top price I possibly could have paid. But at a low, I did at rate. least get a low rate. And now we're looking at mortgage rates up over seven percent in some cases. Um, is this? Do you think? Uh, is, is this part of the problem for house? And do you have other products that you're gonna that you're looking to launch around this? Sure. The, the second, to your answer, second question, Matt. Yeah, we are looking at other products to, to launch around this. Um, but I think the heart of the matter, you know, again, as it relates to housing, and, and it's it's a long term investment. You, re- you long term investment. You recently bought your house. You're going to hopefully be in there on average, right, right, you know, you know, 15 years or so uh, thereabouts. Uh, so it's a long term investment. Um, obviously, historically, um, uh, HPA house price appreciation uh, has been inflationary plus. So uh, so there there's a hedge against inflation there um you know market timing is, is always so so difficult but uh, we see an opportunity especially uh when you look at what's gone on in the housing market and as uh and and, and as that that home prices have gone up so much that really tends to also 
keep residents in apartments longer. And that's, I think, one of the interesting things about what we're seeing today in the rental market. Um, there's, there's an affordability problem with, ha- with home ownership today. And that affordability gap between owning and renting makes it still a very attractive proposition to rent. And we think that's a proposition that's going to uh, certainly last through the end of 22 and most likely into 2023 as well. All right, Al, good stuff. Uh, appreciate you coming on uh, talking to us about the, the housing market here. Al Otero, Portfolio Manager of Armada ETF uh, Advisors, uh, looking at you know mortgage rates north of 6%, and it's really, really headwinds for uh, the real estate market after that surge during the pandemic. Trust Company of the West, the kids now call it TCW. It's a monstrous money management firm out on the West Coast in Los Angeles. A lot of really smart people in the equities and fixed income business. The fixed income folks that we've talked to TCW from, you know, over the last, I don't know how long, but, you know, many, many quarters been really, really conservative in their outlook. And boy, have they been right uh, here. Double digit declines in most fixed income uh, businesses. Steve Kane, co-CIO and generalist portfolio manager with TCW joins us here today. Steve, the fixed income business is brutal. Nobody wants to talk to you guys at cocktail parties. What do you do? What do you do now? <laughs> <We> would. <laughs> what do you do now with your Federal Reserve is just doubling down on raising these interest rates? Well, well, guys, actually, even in the good times when bonds are doing well, no one wants to talk to us at cocktail <laughs> parties. So, so, so this this environment's no different from that perspective. Uh, is it a buy now? Uh, Jeff Gundlach, I believe, um, a TCW alum, he's been buying bonds over the last couple of days, at least according to his Twitter, but he says it's been partially painful, I guess, until you know the last few hours. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot more value in the market. I'm, you know, starting with the idea that Fed tightening cycles, you know, where you were starting this conversation, they're never fun. Uh, they're, you know, I, as I sort of joke with uh, some of our folks around here, you you don't know they're over, but when you start to taste the, the, the bile in the back of your throat, you know <laughs> you're probably getting close, and we're, we're, we're starting to uh, get to that point. Um, but yeah, it's been a brutal market. But, you know, when you talk about real rates in the mid 1% level and investment-grade bonds, Five and a half plus percent agency mortgages pushing six percent high yield almost to ten percent. Uh, those start to look very attractive to us. So we've, you know, we've been scaling in. You know, we're a little bit long uh, duration. You know, we like the rate environment. We're not firing all our bullets to, at today's level. We think there could be more volatility. Probably will be and more pressure upward on rates before this is all done. But um, yeah, we're seeing value. So what do you do when you see like? Uh 30-year gilts yielding 5%, do you start to well, kind of average into that? Or are the markets too volatile um, to make a call? Do you wait till things calm down? Well, we actually got that one right, believe it or not. that um, we, we actually yesterday waited in uh, to 30-year gilts right around 5%, and um, then we sold them today. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought yeah. TCW are these long-term buy-and-hold people. What I'm are you guys doing over there? I'm not going to tell you about all the trades that went the other way, but I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to... <laughs> Is the idea that, that basically when you, when you make that much money, you don't want to get greedy and you just cash in? Yeah, yeah, it is. There's a lot of volatility, and the U.K. is certainly not a... Uh, an area where uh, we have a lot of confidence in the, in the near-term direction of where things are heading. But when things get to extreme levels, uh, like we saw, we, we, you know, we weren't 
positive rates were going to peak out there or there would be intervention. That wasn't really the thesis. But the markets do push back against policymakers at some point, and that will be the case with the uh, the, the currency as the well. The bond vigilantes, they're back, according to Ed Yardeni. So, Steve, how about credit quality here? You know, a lot of folks are saying we're either in a recession or certainly heading towards one. It may even be a severe one. Your teams, your analysts, you know, are they really sharpening their pencils and kind of checking out all the ratios to make sure that they're not overly exposed to credit risk? Yeah, yeah, we are. I mean, I think the areas to be very concerned about, I think, are anything that touches Europe, um, given (laughs) the degree of stress that, uh, you know, that economy is going to be under with the energy crisis there. Here in the U.S., um, yes, we're definitely sharpening our pencils. There's areas of the market regulated areas like banks that we think, you know, notwithstanding the fact that banks typically do suffer a bit uh, during recessions, uh, we think the banks are well positioned today. And so there are areas in the investor grade market where we sharpen the pencils, we've stressed, uh, you know, what, what credits will look like in a recession, even a severe one, and feel very comfortable at, for example, money center bank, you know, senior debt of money center banks north of 200 basis points. Uh, spread to treasuries. We think that's a, a very attractive uh, risk return, notwithstanding a, a fairly, fairly bearish outlook for the economy. We would do. We do think we're we're heading for a recession. Is it too bearish? A, a uh, is one. it too bearish? Yeah, Drucken Miller said he would be. I think he said he'd be shocked if there wasn't a recession by the end of the year. Is there? Uh, is high yield then too risky right now? Yeah. Well, here's what what I would say about high yield. You know, as I mentioned, you know, almost ten percent yield. If you could. Buy your high yield today, put it in a drawer, you know, go do a Rumpelstiltskin, fall asleep and wake up in five years. You'd be happy you did that. But high yield doesn't, you know, we're, we're in a mark-to-market world, total return world. And our sense is that we haven't hit the widened spreads on, on high yield in this cycle at, you know, 550 off uh, treasuries or a little north of that. We, th- we think there's material widening. We're adding a little bit. We're seeing a little bit of opportunity, yep. but we're, we're saving our powder. We do think, you know, somewhere you know, hundreds of basis points wide to here is where you start to, uh, you know, back up the truck. So. All right. Good stuff. As always, Steve Kane, co-CIO and generalist portfolio manager, TCW Investment Management. That meeting plus the capital group are your two anchor meetings when you go to Los Angeles. Those are the ones and you build your whole schedule around that. So when you're going out there to pitch your wares, TCW and capital group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.